Welcome to That Shit Show, a podcast about overcoming trauma. I'm Emma Castle. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show, Keith. Keith is a former police officer who spent uh, 20 years in the Queensland Police Force, but it also happened to coincide with the Queensland Police Force's, um, I guess, most corrupt period. Welcome, Keith. Yeah, thank you, Emma. That's uh, an excellent introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying you were corrupt. I'm just saying that uh, you just... I was going to clarify. (laughs) (laughs) No, you weren't corrupt at all. Uh, Keith has actually just written a book called Drugs, Guns and Lies, My Life as an Undercover Cop uh, um, with a a writer called Ben Smith in partnership. So, So, Keith, what inspired you to put this all in writing? Because there's some stuff in your book that really exposes you (laughs) like in terms of some of the stuff you were doing like those people aren't all dead so um why did you like (laughs) put it in writing oh great question emma um i've been wanting to tell this story since uh i suppose the late 80s um Mm -hmm. and and it was really the catalyst for me literally sitting in front of a keyboard was um, after I was well on the way to recovering from from post-traumatic stress, uh, I prefer to call it injury, but PTSD, um, which took me a long, long time to understand that I actually had something that probably could be helped, I guess. Um, I I sat down because I wanted to give my two daughters um, an understanding of, of why I was so emotionally lost for a long, long time and a major part of their childhood. Um, and then I just started, I didn't write anything chronologically. I just started writing and, uh, and it just flowed out, I guess. And the more I wrote, the more I, um, the more I wanted to. Um, and it took, it took about four and a half to five years, I suppose, all up. Yeah. And during that time I met Ben, uh, Ben was a writer and he really helped me tidy it up, I guess. Um, you know, and, and, and encouraged me to keep uh, to keep writing. So it, it started off as so it's a combination. It was a catharsis for me. Um, it was an explanation to my daughters and an apology to them. Um, and then finished this massive manuscript, and uh, and I was fortunate enough to get it in front of the publishers who uh, who loved it. So this is the first the first ten years, um, and then the second book, hopefully, uh, is the following ten years, which is about tactical work and special weapons and operations and some horrible things that happened there. Um, but I wanted to tell this story primarily because of Harry, and Harry features in the prologue of the book. Um, yes. Harry was an undercover cop with me. He um, joined, as we all did, as an idealistic young bloke and was a practising Muslim. Uh, within 12 months, had a heroin addiction, and, uh, and that undercover work ruined his life. So I've yeah. been wanting to tell his story for a long time. Do you know where he is? Do you know ever yeah. know where he? Is? Yeah. So you found him? Oh yeah. Um, one of our one of our close friends sadly passed away from uh, blood cancer in 2016, and uh, I went up to spend the last few hours with him, and uh, um, then I stayed for. I was asked to speak at his funeral, so I made it my mission to track down the guys from the old days and um and in line with my friend's wishes we all turned up to his funeral wearing hawaiian shirts and uh 
<laughs> um, just had a bit of a celebration, I guess. And, and during that, I, um, I called in a couple of favours and I won't name who they are because they may get into trouble, but um, called in a couple of favours and tracked Harry down. Right. So he, uh, now? he lives on the Gold Coast. Uh, he absolutely gave me his full permission to use his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, as he says, there are no secrets in his background. Uh, he's completely turned his life around. I'm very, very proud of him. Um, he's happily married, has a lovely family, was working in the health system, um, counselling people and, and assisting there and uh, is now living uh, a very quiet, retired life on the coast. And I'm in, uh, yeah, in constant touch with him. Okay. And is he still a practising Muslim? No, he converted to Christianity. He's, uh, he's gone the, the 180. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so let's talk about drugs. Uh, you were running some drugs there at various points throughout your career um, as an undercover cop. And so mm. you were very heavily embedded in a world of like the 1980s Queensland world of, um, I think you said there was lots of heroin around, marijuana. What else was kind of going on at the time? Yeah, uh, a lot of smack. Um, heroin was, uh, you know, it was after the Mr. Asia, um, Terence Don Clark criminal syndicate uh, started bringing massive amounts of heroin into the country, essentially from Southeast Asia. Yeah. Um, and, and what really was uh, an epidemic of heroin use amongst young people particularly. And so I, I volunteered for Undercover. Um, it's probably important um, probably to go back one step and, and explain <laughs> the challenges I had. I'd come from the bush. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. Um, I never used drugs in my life. Um, I'd spent two years at the police academy as a young cadet, so I was 17 years old when I joined. So I was yeah. incredibly naive and um, spent, I think, about three years in uniform in, uh, in various areas, loved it, um, but I had this, this very black and white view of the world and, and that's, that's part of what happens when you're socialised in a police environment um, and, you know, it was quite paramilitary in those days, completely different from what it is now. So I... Uh, I realised, as I've written in the book, that, that we actually had undercover police and, uh, and I wanted to, to approach uh, a situation where I could change the world and, ironically, instead of that happening, the world changed me. Um, I joined, I volunteered, uh, had an interview and I was accepted as an undercover cop and, and I had visions of being the Serpico of Queensland. You know, I wanted to clean up society and contribute as much as I could and you know and and pretty much all of my undercover colleagues had the same initial um, desire we all thought it was a noble thing to do Um, we had very little training and uh, we were essentially thrown into an underworld that was completely foreign to us so this is troubling. This is troubling to me because mm-hmm. you're sent in there without any resources, basically. Like you, you haven't actually tried drugs. Like you don't know how drugs impact you, um, like your motor skills or how they make you feel, mm-hmm. or um, you have no understanding of drug culture. And um, like, so you're you're sent in expected to be able to pretend to be one of them, I suppose. Um, how awkward was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you, you learn quickly. Um, 
it was a matter of um, of me just shutting the hell up and absorbing what I could. And and as uh, as another undercover colleague, Larry, perfectly described it one day when we were chatting when I was initially in there, he said, mate, this is like NIDA on steroids. Um, you need to learn how to act and you need to learn how to act bloody quickly. So what I did was, was there a combination of things? And and as far as drug use was concerned, I've written pretty openly, as you know, uh, about the fact that we all smoked a lot of weed. Um, and, uh, and a certain situation happened one night where I had to do a couple of lines of speed, which was uh, pretty frightening. Um, unlike the movies, no backup, no surveillance. We were just out there alone, um, sometimes carrying a gun, sometimes not. Yeah. But it was um, – and the drug use, whilst it was 80s Queensland, right, um, it was not formally condoned but informally everybody knew that undercovers had to smoke. And uh, and the first time I got stoned I was in North Queensland and I had no idea what was happening to me apart from the fact that I had an overwhelming desire for chocolate um, and everything was hilarious. <laughs> and at that point and, did you think, hey, drugs are actually okay? <laughs> well, it's um, again, there's a funny, a funny story that I've written about. One of my best friends um, who'd been an undercover cop for about a year or so, I'd lost track of him. And, I, and when I started, I realised that's where he'd gone. Um, I'd finished an operation and I was buying a lot of, God, I was buying um, uh, weed. I set up a, a buy bust, I think, for about five pounds of dope. And uh, I was buying a lot of uh, heroin, some acid uh, and some speed was around in those days. Yeah. And, uh, and I went to Ando's place to catch up and have a bit of a chat. And, you know, we, we informally trained each other, I suppose. And, uh, and he said, yeah, mate, it's all, you know, you're going well. This is what you probably could have done better, et cetera. And then he, um, he produced a bag and started to roll up a joint. And I said, oh, um, I don't smoke if I'm not working. I still had that differentiation. Yeah. <laughs> and he just smiled. He just smiled at me and went, yeah, right. And, uh, and away we went. So it, it actually became part of the lifestyle as I say, that was informally condoned, but if we'd been caught, then there would have been some formal action taken. So it was an entire paradoxical world in which to live as a, as a young cop. Yeah, because as you said, you kind of went in there straighty 180, very black and white views on these kind of things, like heading into a noble profession. And over time, you become a little bit more like the people you're actually chasing, I suppose. Um, and also trying to manage your own, um, I guess, psychology, because yeah. I mean, from what you've written and from what I understand from other cops, um, drinking, like in the force, you drink, like we call it the job with a capital J. Um, apparently drinking is the way that people manage trauma in, in the cops or they certainly used to. Um, but at least you guys had access to weed. So you had sort of another, <laughs> you had another, um, avenue of managing, I guess just the general sense of, I don't know, danger, anxiety. I mean, how did you feel when you were actually undercover? How did that feel? Um, look, there's a couple of great points you've made there. If I can just go back one step, the drinking culture was massive. Um, I didn't realise how much I drank until I left. Uh, and, and, and there was no 
sharing of emotion in those days, no sharing of trauma or conversation. It was just self-medicating to, you know, walk factor five. Um, and everybody drank. So when we, when we as the undercover guys could actually get together with each other and, and have, a, have a spliff and have a, uh, a talk, it was incredibly uh, beneficial because we could be with friends. So when you're undercover, when you're mixing with strangers, living one identity and trying to retain uh, the grasp of who you are, but answering to a different name and adopting a different persona and sitting in a pub and drinking rum and coke with people that you would have probably taken great joy in arresting six months before and um, using the language and the body language and the approach and the attitude and actually becoming one of them, that's pretty bloody tough. When you also consider that, that I was 22 years old and my mates were around the same age, um, quite uh, in hindsight, quite concerning stuff. At the time, an incredible rush. I won't, I won't lie about that. It was an incredible buzz because we didn't have to obey any rules. We didn't have to be um, the conventional police identity. We could just do whatever the hell almost that we wanted um, by living that life. Yeah, no, no eight to four shifts, no supervision, nothing. Um, that's part of the problem because we didn't have that supervision and we just probably went a little bit crazy with it. Right. Because in, um, in the back of your book, there's a line that says there weren't just cops and crooks, there were just people and people are both the best and the worst. So during your time undercover, you must have met some good people, you know, like some crooks that were, you know, okay. <laughs> and you've probably yeah. met some cops that you thought, wow, that guy um, is more of a crook than the people I'm hanging out with during my undercover days. So Absolutely. it must get mm. so blurry morally when you're kind of forming relationships um, whilst I guess always holding back your true personality. But can you ever truly completely separate those two worlds? No. Yeah, and again, and, and I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that because that's what I've tried to write about. It's, it's, it's really challenging. And there were some people I met that I quite liked, apart from the fact that they were selling heroin, sure. But I quite liked hanging out. They were funny. They were engaging. A lot of people were intelligent and good company. Um, and it's and at the back of your mind, you still had to to remind yourself that you were there to do a job. Every undercover cop I've ever spoken to, and including a couple of uh, guys that I've met in the US because I've been to the states a bit, have all said the hardest part is the betrayal. Is, is knowing that you are doing something and befriending someone and ultimately betraying them for the right reasons. But that's actually, as a human being, a very tough thing to do. Um, and on the other side of the coin, there were police that I knew were absolutely bent and some of them were probably putting more drugs on the street than we were taking off. Yeah, and, yeah, that's um, a really just, challenging part of your story. Is that you yeah. kind of you're bringing them in, they're sending them straight back out again. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And, and that's why I thought, you know, to, this needed to be an authentic story. And, and that's what I've done. I, I haven't, um, I haven't hidden anything. Um, and when I was writing, it's, it's amazing how much of it came back. But then I, um, I discovered a little stash of notebooks uh, of my drug transactions uh, that I had kept for court purposes. So I opened those up, and when I was writing, the the conversations that you see in the book are the ones that actually happened. The only differences have been I've changed some names. Um, Yeah. Changed some names, as I've put in my disclaimer, to protect the innocent and the guilty. Um, But I've also, I thought about this and thought, you know, maybe some of those people have turned their lives around. Um, and it would be unfair of me to put those names out there in print if that's the case. So the names are different, but the details are are not, Yeah, if that makes sense. Well, I guess through this process you're realising that these people are multidimensional. They've got kids. They're doing this to make money. Uh, Maybe they grew up around criminality. Like you're starting to kind of understand the complexity of what makes a criminal um, and and why these people got involved in selling heroin or whatever it was in the first place. And so, I mean, does your heart sort of soften a little bit to them in that sense because you're like, these guys have had a hard life and I can kind of see the benefits of what they're doing in terms of like they're trying to actually better themselves or like pay for things for their kids or things like that was with things like that hard to kind of mm. reconcile when, when it was time to actually bust these people. Um, yeah, it's, it's difficult to explain because when it, uh, you know, certainly my undercover world changed my attitude towards weed. Um, I'm a huge advocate for drug reform these days. Um, and probably was very quickly after I finished undercover. Um, but as far as heroin was concerned, I saw the damage that that did on a societal level. I went to a lot of overdoses, you know, particularly in pubs in Brisbane. People would die of an OD in in the toilets in those pubs often um, yeah. because the, quant- the quality of, of heroin, um, God, the average street quality in those days was maybe 3 to 10% pure. Um, right. And if a batch came in, from overseas that was uh, probably not cut sufficiently and someone jacked up 30% purity, then they died. Um, and and not to mention also uh, the, I suppose, the amount of those in those days of armed robberies that occurred as a result of heroin addiction. Yeah. And indeed, that's what happened with Harry. When Harry left the police force, they washed their hands of him and um, what little payout he had went up his arm. So the only way he could feed his habit was armed robbery. And, you know, it's just incredibly tragic. Um, so I saw the, I saw the onflow effect of heroin and hated it. Um, anybody who dealt heroin, I still had that um, dislike. I won't call it hatred, but certainly dislike for. Um, I did see people who were dealing to feed their own habit. That was um, that, engendered a different attitude in me. Um, but those who were dealing and not using and just in it for the dollars, they were the ones that I loved busting because that's that's the person I portrayed. You know, I never had to use heroin because my cover was always, I'm in it for the dollars, man. I'm not going to put that shit in my arm, um, which, which, you know, was a role I was comfortable in doing. And um, 
but anybody who was selling, you know, bits of like a few bags of weed here and there to their mates, that just was hard for me to to cope with. And and in fact, again, I've written about a particular guy I met that um, I just didn't want to buy from him. <laughs> and he was selling uh, he was selling some pretty decent uh, Buddha sticks of, of dope uh, of weed. And I didn't want to buy from him because I knew he'd be busted. And he put me in a situation where I just couldn't say no. Oh um, man! Oh, yeah. And I, I really liked him. He was a he was a good guy. And oh. and one of those one of those strange twists of fate, though, Emma. A couple, he was um, he uh, pleaded guilty, and and when uh, he asked to talk to me face to face, because in those days, every time an operation closed, the undercover agent's identity was disclosed. Um, so we had to. We moved all around the state and we changed our appearance as best we could. And there's a whole raft of stories behind being recognised too. But um, he uh, asked to speak with me informally and he said, look, mate, uh, I'm probably going to get 12 or 18 months for this. Maybe I can catch up and catch up with you when I'm out. And I took that with a grain of salt at the time and said, yeah, sure, call the drug squad, mate. Lo and behold, about two years later, uh, there was a message from him um and uh he wanted to meet and have a beer so i met him in a certain pub in brisbane with uh two guys from the office's backup and within five minutes i just turned to them and said it's all fine you know so uh he and i had a couple of beers and uh it's all he wanted to do was just say good day because you were friends like you know i was his mate yeah yeah, because like all's fair in love and war right like he was yeah thing and you did try yeah. to sort of protect him um but you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> at yeah. least you kind of could see that um but i guess let's let's talk about trauma because there is you have two medals for bella apparently this just never happens you have been in some really intense situations involving hand grenades and rifles and people who've escaped <laughs> long yeah. jail and crazy crazy stuff um so like but in the prologue of your book, you say, we were all damaged then, but none of us knew it. Our police work affected us like sediment building up and accumulation. Dead bodies, car smashes, rape victims, the sound of people dying and the sound of people trying not to die. When the heroin hit his brain, it made all those things seem very far away. That's talking about Harry at the end there. But, okay, so you've you've been recognized you've um i guess as far as being a cop goes you're you're top shelf you are a shining example and yet what does it take out of you to actually get to that level and to achieve what you achieved um let's talk about the physical and mental toll your work took on you yeah thank you that's that's very nice of you to say that um it's it's always, I've always found it a little difficult to talk about my medals um, because it's, it seems to me, it's always seemed to me that it's boasting, I guess. I'm becoming more comfortable with it um, because people are genuinely interested. I, um, yeah, what really, I think Undercover started it. Undercover started the, um, the questioning of who I was and um, what my identity and role as a police officer was and how I'd actually be a cop. I, I went from the black and white to more of a grey approach. And and um, and when I left undercover, I went to uniform for a little while and then into the CIB as a detective and saw and worked in a lot of places there that were quite challenging. But that's what cops do. But what really, um, 
what really uh, hit me hard and, and, and I carried for a long, long time was, um, and this is something I've written about that will be in the second book. Um, I was in the tactical field, so special weapons and operations. Um, we executed a search warrant in the early hours of the morning on a house in Virginia, in Brisbane. <clears throat> and, um, and we went into the house. It was the number one most wanted in Queensland and I think number two in Australia at the time. He was a vicious armed robber, a violent man. He, uh, he opened fire on us at very close quarters. And uh, in those days, our vests were only suitable for um, resisting shotgun fire and small pistols. He was using a two, two, three rifle and it ripped through the vest of one of my people, Peter, who was, uh, who was shot five times and died that morning. It, um, <clears throat> he shot my best friend who was standing beside me. And this all happened very, very quickly. Um, Steve was badly wounded and thank God survived. Um, and another officer and I then opened fire on the offender and killed him. Um, what, what tore me apart was what I now understand to be survivor guilt and PTSD um, for about 25 years. And back in those days, we didn't know what it was. No one knew what PTSD was. It didn't even have a name. Um, and... And the police force had no idea how to deal with it. Um, I had no idea what was happening to me. And, uh, and that was a real struggle. I went through suicidal, tenets, uh, suicidal thoughts or ideation. Um, I had all of the classic symptoms and drank. My God, I, I drank for years. Um, had flashbacks, had anger, had anxiety, had depression, had all of those classic symptoms of PTSD. Um, and then. I, uh, I developed a liking for it. I wanted to be in every um, risky situation I could. I wanted to have the opportunity to, uh, to confront violent men. Um, I was involved in a couple of more shooting incidents after that, and then I realised that, um, that the dark side was actually taking over who I was as a person. So I, uh, I left that area and went into surveillance and criminal intelligence. and then. Um, Spent uh, about three years in that area, which was, again, covert and uh, something I was comfortable in, and then went to major crime. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, and the, second, the second Valor Medal was for a um, situation in 1993, I think. Um, yeah, which, uh, 1993, yeah. Yeah, um, that's right, yep. The MLC building in the city, uh, we were, I was working with my colleague doing something else. We had an any unit call, which is um, any police officer will tell you an any unit call gets your attention immediately. And uh, it was a shots fired call in the centre of the city. So we drove in there post haste and, um, and with my tactical background, I, I just basically jumped out of the car and took control and established a cordon and so on and, and went into this building with the intention of shooting this guy if I had to. Um, and, uh, and for whatever known, unknown reason, when I, realized, when I saw this, uh, this male sitting on the, in the foyer of the building with a rifle across his lap and uh, some other things that turned out to be a box full of gelignite and three detonators and a battery, <laughs> um, we now call an, explo an improvised explosive device. For whatever reason, um, I left my gun at the door and sat down and, and spent an hour and a half with him and, and talked him out of everything. And at that stage, at one point, he produced a hand grenade and pulled the pin out. And I thought, Jesus, it seems to get me worse. 
um, I was fortunate enough that I established a rapport with him and, and yeah, and walked out with him after a, a while. Um, and all through that, in, in, in hindsight, I don't, I've been asked whether it was a death wish. It wasn't a death wish at all, but it was a need for rush and adrenaline. And That's then, what I'm hearing. Like it's, yeah. you said that when you were 22 and sitting in that pub drinking those rum and cokes with those bad dudes, it was exciting. And mm, yeah. a lot of people, uh, I, as I understand it, it's the same with military people is civilian life is really hard because it's so boring compared to <laughs> like the highs and lows you experience in your working life. And so it sounds like you were chasing that high a little bit. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, um, I didn't realize it at the time. Um, but certainly in later years I've, I've come to realize that's exactly what I was doing. So when, um, when I decided to leave the police, when I was when I was uh, offered a role in in the corporate world, um, and it it had actually emotionally broken me. It had, the job had broken my heart. Um, you know, I, I saw it changing from, in my view, um, protecting people to a corporate hologram, and and that just wasn't why I joined. But when I was offered a role outside, I, I literally sat with uh, reasons to stay, reasons to go. Um, the only reasons I could come up with to stay were job security um, and adrenaline. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and I guess that says it all, yeah. And have you sought to replace that adrenaline in other ways? Because that would change your neuro neural pathways. Like you yeah. are geared towards wanting that hit now and so have you gotten into extreme sports or mindfulness to try and reprogram your brain what have you done to try to sort of get unhooked from that or it's, um, alter it's it? been a journey yeah it's been a journey um I, i've i've tried well cool yeah now that you mention it <laughs> um rappelling off buildings and uh out of helicopters and uh, yeah, some various other extreme things. Um, but I, I went back to martial arts about ten years ago. Um, so I train three or four times a week in a in a martial art dojo, and that gives me my mindfulness. That gives me my tribal belonging again. Um, I really miss those people with lockdown, and it's it's. The best sense of camaraderie I've I've had since I left the police force, um, and that I think has been my saviour in a lot of ways. Um, when I still have some challenging days, um, I walk into the doorway of that dojo and they all go away. So, and and I've said that just when I, when I grade my first grading to my first and black belt um, uh, a few years after I started again. Um, our tradition is to to give a two or three minute conversation or speech presentation about what the art means, and that's precisely what I said. You know, it's um for me this is this is not just my salvation; it's my tribe, and I've got that back. Um, as far as the yeah replacing adrenaline, I, I don't think I need that anymore. I do a bit of running; that's good for the mind. Um, but you know, I'm I'm just much more at peace now um, after I've been on the path of recovery and and I think the 
most powerful thing in anybody uh, in anybody's world who's diagnosed with PTSD is that diagnosis. That certainly has been for me. Once I heard the words that, yes, Keith, there is no doubt you have PTSD, that was actually quite empowering because right. it, it told me that I wasn't imagining it and that now it existed, I could actually do something about it, if that makes sense. Who said that to you? Who helped you identify that? Um, my most recent uh, counsellor who I've been speaking with, for, we realised it was 12 months um, last month. Okay, so this is a pretty recent thing. Um, mm. So when you left the force, went to the corporate world, you know, that, that, that's a pretty long time before you kind of found this counsellor. So you're sort of suffering through all of trying to deal with this, it sounds like, on your own. And it, so you said you were drinking quite a bit. So what other forms of... Um, support did you have around you before you found a counsellor who could help you and before you found martial arts because martial arts are we talking taekwondo here no um uh okinawan karate goju goju ru karate Ah, okay great okay so you found karate 10 years ago but you only found a sort of helpful counsellor 12 months ago by the sounds of Mm. it yeah i'd i'd seen a few um, but I, I never really had that comfort with uh, with any of them, um, and I suppose with uh, with the person I see now, and it sounds like a relationship, and it probably is. It is. <laughs> she is. Um, yeah, she's she's really incredibly easy to talk to, and just draws everything out in however methodology or whatever methodology she uses, and um, and she's helped me immeasurably. So. Not really. The only support I had was my uh, was my family, um, and I just I still reflect on those times when I had just that anger and never violent, but just I had such a short fuse. Um, and talking with other cops, it's so common. And talking with some ADF guys I know who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan, it's the same thing. You just you don't know why. You're just angry, um, and. And a huge part of my recovery, and I'm, I'm so grateful that this happened, was that 25 years after Peter was murdered in that, that job in 1987, um, I was invited to Queensland for a, a commemoration and a, a reunion and, and I guess a celebration of the formation of a, of a very professional special emergency response team unit up there now. I was quite worried. Um, about going because in my mind, um, I thought they'd blame me for Peter's murder. Um, and, and part of my recovery is I realized I saw my friend murdered in front of me. So that's, um, you know, once I realized that that was the case that made things sort of fall into place. Um, so I went up there quite trepidatiously and, uh, and I went to this reunion, introduced myself and I realized these guys knew who I was. And, and in my strange, paradigm at that time I thought oh it's because they know that you know I I probably could have done more to prevent it um at any rate about 1 a.m maybe 2 (laughs) a.m I was with uh, a half a dozen of these guys because they said you're coming with us Banksy and uh and I I don't know I just said something like "I, I hope you guys don't hold it too much against me and one of them put his arms around my shoulder and said what the fuck are you talking about mate you're one of our heroes 
you know, you did a fantastic job. The next morning, um, I woke up and it had all gone away. That's cool, that? Wow. Because mm. you said you had survived. So it was your... just, um, it was just affirmation. Yeah. 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 And I think sometimes it does have to come from someone else. Like it doesn't matter what you tell yourself. Sometimes you really do need to hear it from somebody else. It's almost as though you were able to forgive yourself or something. Yeah. That's, that's, that's what it was, I think. And um, because someone else, like, you know, guys that I respected and these young, brave, tough men, um, I, I was able to believe it because it came from someone else. Mm. Yeah, it's, wow, that's interesting. So I suppose now you've got, you've found martial arts, you've got a great counsellor. Um, you said you wrote this book for your daughters. How old are your daughters? Um, my, young, my youngest, Julia, is 22 and Carly is almost 25. Right, and so when they read this book, how did they respond to it? Oh wow, um, it's it, it, that almost makes me cry actually because they both uh, they both um, hugged me, loved me, um, told me how much I meant to them, and uh, and told me at various times, you know, where they cried. <laughs> um, it's it's really. It's been wonderful um, because there were there were parts in there that I probably would have never told them about, and uh, and I wanted them to know that you know I was a young kid and things had happened. And I, I look at them now, I have to tell you, and at that age, and think, man, what I was doing when I was that age just is quite frightening, quite disturbing. Um, but no, it's it's been wonderful. It's been a great journey. Right. So do you feel as though they have also forgiven you now that they know what you went through? Like in terms of you said you used to have a very short fuse and you used to be quite angry and that sounds like it could have been tough to grow up with, you know, like even if it wasn't directed at you, being around someone angry is kind of scary. Um, So do you think your daughters have a better understanding and therefore are more forgiving in terms of maybe past behavior yeah yeah that's that's exactly what's happened um they they now they understand it much more and uh, and they're just wonderful young women they girls always love their dads and uh and i'm sure that they had forgiven me some time ago but now um it's even more um yeah it's it's even more of a forgiveness i guess yeah, well, it's seeing your dad as a multi-dimensional person um, and understanding how you formed, I suppose. So yeah. if you could go back and talk to the 17-year-old you, would you say, look, mate, <laughs> do not join the force? Or what would you say to 17-year-old um, Keith? No, no, I wouldn't say that. I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, it was a great job. I loved, I loved the majority of it. I met some of the best people in the world. Um, I also met some of the biggest losers in the world, and I'm talking about cops here, um, but some of the best people in the world and, and the overwhelmingly vast majority were dedicated, honest, hardworking people who did it because um, they actually wanted to contribute and make a change. 
Um, I would probably say to the 17-year-old, and gee, you've put me on the spot here, I'd probably say to the 17-year-old, um, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. And, uh, yeah, that would be it because I spent a lot of years not being kind to myself. Yeah, it sounds like you've been super hard on yourself, actually. Um, so would you say that now you are kind to yourself? Have you learnt that skill? Yeah, I'm much more at peace now. Um, I'm much more accepting of my weaknesses and my flaws. I, uh, For whatever reason, I spent a lot of my life uh, wanting to do things perfectly and uh, and when that didn't happen perfectly, that really made me beat myself up. And, and I guess that's part of the condition as well. Um, but no, I'm, I'm really in a good place now. So I'm very comfortable to have these conversations. And, and I really hope that in some small way, um, my book, and hopefully books plural, um, will actually generate more of a conversation around the, the, the wave of PTSD and certainly suicides that sweep through first responders in this country oh boy yeah well i mean let's face it it's a cracker of a story <laughs> it's a really oh, really good story you know so it's it, this is kind of your underbelly type um drama and action however i guess the sting in the tail is what all of that stuff does to the people who enter the force with really good intentions um, and get muddied up by you can't you can't play that game without getting a little bit dirty. So mm. I suppose it's how do you think that the police need to be supported? Like if you could actually advise the police force on what they need to do to support their officers and detectives and everyone of every rank. Um, what do they really need in place? Because we need police, you know, so the police yeah. need to cop a real flogging and obviously George Floyd, um, police are copying a real flogging at the moment, but you know, when everyone's in trouble, who you call, you call the police, um, Thanks. and all, all the, the ambulance, you know, the ambos. And so, mm. What do you guys not, well, you're not one of them anymore, but I kind of think you always are, always will be, but what do they need to make sure they can continue doing their job? Yeah, another great, you're good at this. <laughs> another <laughs> great question. Um, and as I keep saying, the vast majority of police are there for the right reason. Um, you know, what's happening now just breaks my heart. And uh and I still bleed blue. That's our saying. I absolutely still bleed blue. Huge supporter of the police. Um, I think what needs to happen to have people feel they are supported is that the values need to be lived and not just espoused, but lived from the top. So what happens now is that there's absolutely much more of a support network available for police through uh, departmental counsellors, etc. However, the problem is um, the culture still exists. It's not written, it's not uh, acknowledged, but the culture still exists that if you put your hand up and say, I've got a problem, your career path is probably adversely affected. Um, that stops a lot of police from putting their hand up and saying, I've got a problem. What I've long, long said is that 
um, and I think Victoria is starting to do that now with the Victoria Police Association, is that there needs to be an informal support network. So, um, and by that I mean, if you know, the, the amount of um, the amount of shootings uh, in this country have increased massively over the last twenty years. Police shootings, I'm talking about. A lot of causes of that. Um, you know, a lot of uh, there are a number of suicides by cop now that didn't happen before, which is where someone will deliberately confront a, uh, an officer and be shot because that's an easy way to kill themselves. Um, uh-huh. All of yeah, it's it's pretty common. All of those have um, an effect. On, on the person who squeezes the trigger. Now, had there been, and I'll, I'll, I'll go back to my experience, had there been an informal support network when, um, when I was uh, involved in the shooting that resulted in the murder of Peter and the death of the offender, um, and had I been able to talk to someone who's, who would have said to me, listen, mate, this is what's going to happen to you, and it's okay. You're going to feel... Um, sad you're going to feel powerless you're going to have bad dreams you're going to want to drink a lot you're going to be angry you're going to be obsessive about a few things then that would have made me understand that it wasn't an unusual thing and it wouldn't have um it it certainly would have increased my ability to recover quickly i think police forces um as i think as i know i've said in the book police are isolationist by nature and in order to get to senior rank in any police force or service in Australia, you must have worked your way up from the bottom. That's good, and there should never be a police commissioner who's never faced an angry person. However, um, there's a real opportunity for police forces to open their minds to outside um, conversation, and this is one of them. An informal bunch of cops that someone is involved in a traumatic incident can be given a list of phone numbers to say, ring any of these people, they've been there. That would be incredibly powerful. Um, As far as uh, internal counselling is concerned, there absolutely needs to be a zero tolerance for discrimination against people who come forward and say they're struggling. Because in my, my mind, those that actually say they're struggling are braver than those who say they're not. Well, it's almost like it needs to be mandatory because of the stuff Mm. that cops see every single day and whether people respect the counselling process or, you know, the emotional support structures that can be put in place, by making it kind of compulsory, um, it sort of removes the shame of it, I suppose, because everyone has to do it, (laughs) you know, and you can publicly be like, oh, what a drag. But when you're actually in a session with a counsellor, you can hopefully hopefully be honest yeah it's challenging emma um because and i totally understand the attitude there's still an attitude in a lot of police that what would a counselor know because they haven't actually been on the street and been involved in it um that's always challenging it took me a long time to overcome that um (laughs) overcome that mindset as well um I, i think making it mandatory and it it possibly is in certain situations i think with shootings it is um um, i know counseling is offered in other situations but i'm i'm more about the you know the cop who wakes up one morning and thinks shit i can't face this anymore yeah yeah that's that's the one that's where the vulnerability is and and there's uh as as i as i continually say there's an epidemic of suicides amongst 
police particularly in this country and um and i i'm not sure that no actually i'm certain it's not being addressed that's heartbreaking because i know mm. that police spend so much time just people your know, average officer not necessarily detectives and so forth but um they spend so much time attending suicides so yeah nobody knows better than police what suicide does like to communities yeah. to families um to first responders and so it's like you've got to be at a pretty desperate point when you kind of like okay this is starting to seem like a good option you know because you're not yeah. going in blind you are going in extremely well informed about what will happen if you are successful in committing suicide so and and that's why some of the black humour kicks in now. That's why cops are good at it because they know the mistakes that people make when they attempt suicide and it doesn't work. Um, yeah. And that's why you'll find police suicides are pretty much successful, right. which is incredibly sad. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what I'm hoping. You know that that these sorts of conversations will uh, will encourage some more conversations around that. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. because I don't want to become a cop, but I really want lots of other good people to be cops, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, what, if, what if it kind of gets to the point where people don't want to do this stuff anymore because people do understand the risks and they're just like, you know what, I'm not up for that. It's um, We need someone who's up for it. We need people who are willing to, to go there. It's the same as politics and lots of other things where it takes a huge personal toll on you. but people good people need to take those positions or we're all screwed <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have said it any better myself um you know but for all of the the negative publicity and all of the challenges of the job i'm continually amazed in a great in a good way um by the amount of young people who want to join and do it and even even um a guy that i train with in a dojo now is 42 um and he's applied right you know so I'm, I'm actually waiting for a phone call from vic paul to give him his reference um so yeah you know there's there's people still you know one of the things that that really rekindles my faith in human nature is that there are still people who genuinely want to give to society and this is a way they see to do it Right. So what would you say, like, what are the traits of a good police officer? So if someone's thinking, hey, I maybe I'm interested, what do you need to have to be a good cop? Um, it used to be six foot tall and, uh, you know, <laughs> big and tough. Um, I, I think the most, I think the most desirable trait is empathy and uh and an ability to relate to others um there have been a lot of situations i've been involved in where i've i've actually just talked to people and calmed it the heck down um and it's not just it's not just empathy to resolve a situation it's actually having empathy with victims and empathy with um with people who may have been forced into offending because of circumstances as you touched on before and really have the ability to not see things in black and white. And I think that comes with life experience. In hindsight, I was a cop way too young. I was 19. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, you know, it maybe. It sounds like a 
something that people who are looking for a midlife career change, like they may not be physically in the prime of their life, but it sounds like they'd be really, really good at the empathy because it sort of hopefully comes naturally with age and experience. So I feel like maybe really young people potentially aren't fully equipped because <laughs> they can't well, be. It's a hard one, though, because I've met some young people who have wisdom beyond their years. So it's it's just a tough, it's a tough one. Um, yeah, I, I'm really pleased there's been a change in mindset again through police forces over the last I don't know, 20, 25 years that they welcome older people. Um, so it's not just about being able to do the physical stuff. It's that they're actually actively targeting more mature people, probably for that reason. Um, and in my experience on the street, when you've got a you know a, a situation that that is incredibly volatile, it's often been the older male or female um, who's been able to resolve it because maybe it's maybe it's the way we're wired that we actually take notice of older people more than younger. Who knows? Um, mm. But yeah, it's it's. It's a vexing question, all right, because you're right, we do need police. Without police, we have anarchy, and we can see what's happening overseas right now, um, although, you know, a lot of the police response is, is over the top, but we're seeing the potential um, for lawlessness. It's, mm. uh, I don't know what's going to happen there. Hopefully, by the time this podcast is, is released, it's been a peaceful resolution. Well, let's hope so, because that's really, you know, inner peace equals outer peace, you know. So, like, <laughs> that's a very, very simplistic way to sum up, you know, yeah. this big conversation we've just had. But if we can kind of choose police who have the right traits, um, support those people, train them, give them great mentorship, great, give them great access to supports. Um, like you said, those phone numbers when you've, you've been involved in a police shooting um, and, you know, perhaps training within the force to recognise the signs if you think that one of your colleagues is maybe going to top themselves, um, you know, to know what to do. <laughs> If, yeah. if it's looking yeah. like it's heading in that direction, um, you know, like I, I think, I th yeah, I think it's getting better. I, no, I know it's getting better, and and I know that um, police are much more comfortable to ask their colleagues if they're okay now, and and uh, maybe it's a generational thing, but but I do know that people are more um, open to discussing how they're coping with their peers. Mm. Um, yeah. So uh, that's that's a positive. That's a positive. Well, that's that's good, and all all positive change. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good thing. So, uh, so Keith, I guess um, any final words about your book? Like, where can people buy your book, and will you be doing um, author appearances around the country? Um, well, COVID, darn it. We didn't uh, we didn't <laughs> see that one coming. Um, <laughs> it's uh, it's available on Booktopia. Um, and uh, and people can pre-order it now. So it will be in bookstores from the 2nd of July. Um, and this is when I use that line, all good bookstores near you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> it's um, it's published by Alan and Unwin. And, uh, and yeah, look, I, I'd really, of course, I'd like people to, to read it. But, um, you know, if at the end of the book, if someone can finish that book and go, wow, cops aren't all 
writing traffic tickets and annoying me when I'm on the freeway. It's it's much more than that. Then that would be a great thing. Right. So career counsellors should be handing this out. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And and also give it to maybe some young police might want to read it and uh, just reflect on the bad old days and and think to themselves they won't make the same mistakes. That would yeah. be good. Yeah, okay. Well, thanks so much, Keith. It was great to speak to you. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way to get in touch? Do you have a website or? Um, um, I Yeah, I do have a website that uh, is uh, www.keithbanks.com.au. Okay, um, cool. Which is about the book at the moment. Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram as Banksy175. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, okay, cool. So people can get in touch with you that way. Thank you absolutely. so much for your time, Keith. Thank you, Emma. It's been great chatting with you. It's, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, it's been interesting. You've been listening to That Shit Show. If you like what you heard, please head to the website, thatshitshow.com, to download more episodes or read the show notes. Also, if anything you've heard today has triggered you and made you upset in any way and you'd like to talk about it, please head to the Lifeline website, lifeline.org.au. The number to call is 131114 because this is heavy stuff and I understand that it can bring up your own emotions um, and your own traumas. So please do reach out for help. Uh, And in the meantime, thanks so much for listening.